Dear Lord, we thank you once again for this day. We thank you for your grace, we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your instruction that teaches us about your grace and your mercy and also how we should live. We just ask that as we go through this today, we understand it in the way you meant it, and that we uh, leave from here changed uh, because we've been uh, fed by your word. We just ask that your Holy Spirit move uh, through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, quick review. Come on in. We need a, we get we good on seats. I see we got two there. We can bring in some more if we need. Um, we did the Beatitudes. Clearly, those were just the characteristics, or those are the characteristics or attributes of a believer. We need to not forget those as we go through this. I think those should be coming to mind as we read the entire Sermon on the Mount. We should be uh, thinking about them, mentioning them. But last week we then went, okay, those who have the Beatitudes are to be salt and light. And so um, salt, as we looked at, was you know primarily a preservative to a culture, to society. That's how we we're supposed to act. And then we also looked at it brings flavor, brings taste, brings meaning to life. Life without Christ is meaningless. We looked at light, how it exposes the darkness and helps people see. But what we did a lot last week is we stepped back and we said, well, what is the state of this world? If we're called to be salt and light, what is the state of this world that this is needed? And so we looked at the fact that this world is under the influence of the wicked one. And our lives should stand out from the rest of the world. It should be different. We should not be the same. We should not look just like the world. We should be different. And that should come out in persecution, comes out in the way we face sufferings, all different types of things. And so, as I said earlier, this has kind of been the theme all through the first 16 verses, the, the characteristics of a believer and how that leads them to be salt and light. Today we move into, well, what about these good works that we're called to do? What do these have to do with Christ, and what do these have to do with the law? How does the law fit into this? And that's where uh, uh, Jesus is going to go this morning. So, we'll, uh, if someone would, uh, someone read Matthew chapter 5, is where we are, uh, verses 17 through 20. We'll start with this section first. Someone read 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who set aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to grab some chairs. It looks like we're full in here. Got a few more coming in, so we might have to make some room as those chairs come in. Um, thank you for reading that. Now imagine... Here's Jesus. He comes on the scene. Some people are saying he's the Messiah. Some people are saying he's a, he's, just, he's a good teacher. Some people say he's of God. Some people wonder, is he really of God? What is he doing through all of this? He's been contradicting the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the law of, of God, of the Old Testament. So some of the questions that might be coming out are, how does Jesus view the law? 
You know, does he have a problem with the law and the prophets? Because if so, that's a real problem. Because we know the Messiah wouldn't do that. The Messiah was prophesied in the law and the prophets. So how does Jesus relate to the law? What does he think of the law? That's really what he's going to address in these verses we just read. So Jesus is here going to show us two things. Martin Lloyd-Jones points these out. The first thing he's going to show us is that everything he is going to say, and the rest of the Sermon on that and his entire ministry even, is in harmony with the law. He sees the law, he honors it, he knows that it is what, I mean, he knows it is God's law, it's his law. We'll look into that some more today. But the other thing he's going to show us is that everything that he is going to say is out of harmony with the Pharisees. Pharisees didn't get it, but they were the teachers of the law, of the people of Israel, and they were being misled. They did not understand the law. And so, this is really part of what Jesus is starting to do here. You see, there are two misunderstandings when it comes to Jesus, even today. The first misunderstanding when it comes to Jesus and the law is that Jesus actually came just to expand the law, kind of help us understand it a little better. Now that we have this understanding, just live that way, and then you will be saved. So Jesus didn't you know, really give us a gospel. He gave us law, and if you live it, you're saved. That's legalism. We don't believe that. And Jesus clearly is not teaching that. Um, the second one, the second error that comes out of uh, believing Jesus' relation to the law is that Jesus actually came to abolish the law. The law is completely gone. All of it. None of it applies to us anymore. We're in the church age. The Old Testament's gone. We have no relationship to the law. We don't even need to think about the law. Well, that is clearly false, is what we just read. Jesus said, no, it's not what I've come to do. I did not come to abolish the law. So, in Matthew 5, 17, he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he did not come to abolish two things, the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. What do you think Jesus means here by law? Because law can be interpreted a lot of different ways. What is he referring to when he says law? The law of the land? The law of Rome? The law of Moses? The law of Moses, clearly. So he's looking at the Old Testament law, Ten Commandments, all the commands that flow from all of that. Does anybody know some of the divisions of the law, the three, three aspects of Mosaic law? Civic. civic or civil or judicial. So there were there were legal commands that applied to the community. Those would be the judicial laws. Um, you know, if you murdered someone, you were put to death. If you did this crime, you had to pay this price. So civil laws, we have those today. So there's civil laws. What else? Ceremonial and moral law. Ceremonial and moral law. So we've got the ceremonial law. Those are all the types and pictures of the Old Testament, the sacrifices that pointed to Jesus. Um, and then we also have the moral law. You know, it is morally wrong to commit adultery. It's morally wrong to steal. It's morally wrong to lie. So there's the moral aspects of all of this. So those are really the three things. And so Jesus, when he says, I did not come to abolish the law, is thinking of the law, and I believe he probably has all three aspects of these in mind. What do you think he means when he says, I did not come to abolish the prophets? What is he saying there? <laughs> prophets are teaching 
Yeah. So you're saying she's not abolishing what they were teaching? Is that what you said? Yes. Well, yeah, because they, they were teaching the law of Moses, but they were just mm-hmm. interpreting because they were teaching in a different language, I think. Well, yeah, well, they, they added things. You know, obviously, the, you had the law came through Moses. Moses was also a prophet. But you also had all the prophecies right. of the Old Testament. And what they taught, Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come to contradict those. Those are absolute. Those are true. And so I'm not going to abolish these things. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, basically, if you take the law and the prophets, really what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to contradict or abolish anything in the Old Testament. The Old Testament stands, is really what he's saying here. He goes on to say, I came to fulfill them. That term fulfill is interesting. What do you think he means when he says, I came to fulfill them? Maybe what does he not mean? Any, any thoughts on that? I think it's probably easiest to see in the ceremonial law because all the ceremonial law was pointing towards Christ's coming and he came and he fulfilled all of that. And then the prophecy is really easy to see because there's what, over 600 messianic prophecies and he fulfilled mm-hmm. each and every one of them. Exactly. So in, in those ways it's easy to see. The civic, you know, that, that aspect is maybe a little bit tougher to dig into, but those two aspects are, are really So easy. the ceremonial and the prophets, clearly. So yeah, ceremonial, you have the picture of the scapegoat in the Old Testament where the sins are placed on one and sent out of the camp. You have the other one being sacrificed. Jesus was our substitute. He fulfilled all those types. He fulfilled all those ceremonies. The moral law, I, I think we didn't mention that, but how did he fulfill the moral law? What does that mean, he fulfilled the moral law? He kept it. He, he was sinless. Yeah, I think he clearly showed examples of what the, of the what moral law is, that he did not, he did not commit adultery nor kill, and he's, he's trying to show us by doing these, by not doing these, that you are living, you're living righteous for, for my sake, not for your glory, yeah. your glory, but for mine. Exactly. So I, I think it's he's showing examples. So he clearly shows us an example in his life of how we should live. But he fulfills it. I mean, has any other person that has ever lived fulfilled all the moral requirements of the law? No, all have sinned and all have fallen short. And so that's, that's where we are. Now, one thing it doesn't mean, and this is what a lot some people interpret it to mean, is what he means by fulfill is he completes it. Like, the law was imperfect. Christ gives us a little more understanding, a little addition to it, and now the law is perfect, so therefore just live the law. Again, that's legalism. That's not what he's doing. He fulfilled it. He lived the sinless life that we could not. He fulfills all the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Not only that, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial aspects that he was required to fulfill by the law, even when he lived. Circumcision, all these types of things. He had to meet all those fulfillments, so he did that too. The judicial one is the interesting one. Did he really fulfill the judicial law, the civil law? Well, in one sense you could say no, but in another sense you could say, well, yeah. Because the law demands payment for it being broken. Christ bore our wrath on the cross. Was that really the civil aspect of it? Maybe, maybe not. I'll let you think through that. But clearly he fulfills all the law. So, and we see in there double imputation of justification. Our sins are imputed to him and he bears our wrath and his righteousness, he doing what we could not 
living the perfect life, being righteous, his righteousness is accounted as ours. That is the doctrine of justification. And clearly, as you said, the prophets, he fulfilled the prophets. Let me just give you a few of them. Here's some of the prophecies. He was going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. He'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. He would speak in parables, Psalm 78.2-4. He would be hated without reason, Psalm 35.19. He would be spat upon and struck, Isaiah 50, uh, verse 6. He would be pierced, Zechariah 12.10. He would do all of this to save his people by a sub- being a substitute for them in order to make atonement for their sins, Isaiah 53.5. Then in his darkest hour he would be resurrected. Psalm 16.10. Psalm 49.15. That's eight. There are over 300, maybe 600, I'm not sure what the number is, prophecies that Christ came to fulfill. He's He's not going to abolish any of those. He's going to fulfill those prophecies. So he goes on. Matthew 5.18, he says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. First of all, you know what an iota and a dot is in the Hebrew language? It's basically like the dot of an eye or an accent. Even those little minute details of the law, he's saying. Every aspect of it's going to be fulfilled. So ultimately, that's what he's saying here, right? He's saying everything about the Old Testament is going to come to pass. It is going to be fulfilled. Nothing will be left unfulfilled. Nothing about it is false. So what does that teach us about Jesus' understanding in relationship to the Old Testament? First of all, it teaches us that Jesus believed the Old Testament was authoritative scripture. To doubt it is to doubt him. He's saying this is the word of God. All of it is going to come to pass. None of it will fail. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, At no time has God shown more clearly the inviolable and absolute character of his holy law as when he placed his son under it. Jesus comes to this world to live under this law, to accomplish what we could not do. That gives credibility to the perfection of the law. Now, it could not save us. Once someone is a sinner, the law cannot save you, so it's not perfect for that. But in itself, being what it is, it's perfect. So, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones also says this, because a lot of people want to discount the Old Testament. They say it's not that significant. Let's just print the New Testament. We don't even need the Old Testament with it half the time. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, if we're not clear in our understanding of the law we will never really be clear in our understanding of the meaning of the cross. It is all fulfillment. The law was, the cross was demanded because the law demanded death. But he goes on in Matthew 5.19 and he says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, what is, I mean, we're starting to see here now, what is our relationship to the law? How should we view the law? Well, because of this, those of us who exhibit the Beatitudes and are salt and light, how should we relate to the law? First of all, we cannot believe the Old Testament to be false. We can't. 
We cannot believe that the ceremonial law and understanding the temple and things like that are really just a waste of time. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You search the scriptures thinking in them you have life, but they are what testify of me. When we read the Old Testament, we should be seeing Jesus. We need to understand this. We need to to search that out. Here's one that's easy to do. We cannot believe that the judicial law of Israel was unreasonable. Ceremonial law, or the judicial law, said someone breaks the Sabbath, they would be put to death. Does that strike you as overbearing, too harsh? It really strikes against us, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying today, in America, that that should be the law. We're not a theocracy. We are not Israel. We live in the kingdom of heaven. But to say back then when God commanded that, he was too harsh, is to not trust the law, to not see it for what it really is. And the other thing we cannot do is we cannot believe the moral law of the Old Testament to be outdated or abrogated. This is what a lot of people want to do today. You know, there's some, some views on sexuality there that really don't fit our cultural values. And so maybe we can just kind of look at that and say, well, that was just for them. We need to let that go today. We can't do that. The moral laws. Now, when you think through the law, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. We don't do sacrifices. That's what Hebrews is all about. The judicial law does not necessarily apply to us. We're not Israel in the theocracy. Now, there may be some aspects of the judicial law that we might want to mirror in our society, but we're not under the judicial aspect. But the moral law never changes. The moral law stems from God's nature. To say that the moral law then changes is to say that God's nature changes. So the moral law never changes. And so we have to trust and believe that we, we, we can't judge the moral law, basically. We have to see it for what it is. It's the authority. It should inform us. We don't inform it. So, it goes on and it says this. Those uh, who lower the understanding of the law or relax it, say, well, it doesn't really mean that. You don't really need to follow this moral command. You can go do that. I know you might not think so. The church may say you don't do that, but don't really worry about that. That was old. That was cultural. Enjoy your sexual freedom or whatever they're, they're saying. This says they will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, first of all, that can mean two things. One, they won't even be in the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's one possibility. But look, to be a Christian, we need to be Christians, obviously. But if you want to be a leader, a leader is known for his integrity, for what he teaches. And those who do not teach the word of God the way it should be are least in the kingdom of heaven. They may be Christians. But this happens on TV all the time. We have these preachers out there who just water it down. I don't like to teach on sin and, and, and the cross because people know about that. I'm just going to teach on being positive. And I know they're living in sin, but I'm not going to tell them about this. I'm not going to really inform them about that. I just want them to be happy. Well, one, if they're even a believer, this is making a statement about them. We must teach the law the way it is and understand it the way it is. 
So we cannot be people who compromise the law or lower its requirements. We are to love the law even as Christ did. That's ultimately, I believe, what's being said here. He goes on in verse uh, 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I believe this is the heart of what he's going to be teaching over the, what we'll be going through over the next three or four weeks. Everything he's going to say is illustrating this. So it is important that we get this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Just step back for a minute. Think about this. Put, put it in perspective. This would have been shocking to the hearers of the day. Oh, sure. The, the Pharisees, their goal was to be holy by profession. They were paid to be holy. They did all these works of the law. Not only did they do all the ceremonies, they went beyond the requirements of the ceremonial law. They, the Bible says, the law says, fast once a year at least. They fasted twice a week. So here they are doing all these things that are really holy, that appear to be holy at least. And Jesus says, look, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying about them? They're not entering the kingdom of heaven. So it's a very negative statement about them, and it should cause us to go, whoa, did I even spend time reading my Bible 15 minutes last week? Spend time in prayer for more than 15 minutes? Maybe before a quick line or two before dinner? Where do I measure up? And so all these statements about this level of righteousness should cause us to go, whoa, wait a minute. I need to reevaluate myself. Now, clearly there were major problems with the Pharisees. Four of them come to mind. One, they were self-righteous. They saw the righteousness in themselves. So they were not poor in spirit. Clearly, they're not having the kingdom of heaven because of that. They were concerned about ceremony, but not about the heart. And so, in one sense, they were not pure in heart. They thought, as long as I go through and do these rituals, it doesn't matter what I think in my heart, how my heart reacts or thinks about people or women or men or whatever. It doesn't matter because I do these ceremonies. You know, it doesn't matter. I've been baptized. I take the Lord's Supper. I listen to preaching. It doesn't really matter what I do throughout my week. Kind of the attitude. So really what that is, is uh, again, that's just not being pure in heart. They followed man's laws over God's laws. For example, one of the laws of the Pharisees, or one of the laws of God is when your parents get older, you take care of them. They made up a new law. We call it Corbin. If you just give your money to the temple that would have gone to them, you don't have to do that. And that way you can be more holy and give it to God instead of your parents. Well, that is following man's tradition over what God has told them to do. So they were not meek. Remember, meek is submission to God. They said, no, I'm not going to submit to God. I'm going to submit to my own ways. I'll make it sound holy. And then finally, they were focused on self over others. Why would they even do this Corbin thing? 
because it made them look more holy. They weren't worried about the suffering of their parents or the lack of their parents. They were worried all about self. So clearly there are major problems with the Pharisees. But realize what Jesus is saying. The law is the standard. And you need to live it as what's required. So how do we, how do we exceed the, the uh, scribes and Pharisees? How do we do what is required? Is Jesus really saying here, here's where the Pharisees are. If you do this, then you'll be saved. That's the way a lot of people want to interpret it. That is not what he is saying here. So first of all, we have to realize he's not saying, do this and you will enter it. He's saying, if you are part of the kingdom of God, because you've been changed, you will do this. It's much like the Beatitudes. We're not, we don't become poor in spirit so we get the kingdom of heaven. It's because we've been saved, because we've been changed, that we are poor in spirit. So he's, he's doing this. But as you think through this, this should shock us. And as we think through theologically what Paul has said and others have said, what is the purpose of the law? Clearly it is not to save us. No man can be justified by the law. The purpose of the law is to show us that we fall short. So in Jesus setting the standard up, he's not saying, here it is, meet this, and then you'll be saved. What he's actually doing is saying, here's this, you'll never meet it. You'll never get there. And so the law was put in place to show us our sinfulness. It was put in place so that sin may abound, Scripture says, so that we would see how much we fall short. And then what is it supposed to do from there, for those of the spirits working? It is to drive us to Christ because he is our source of righteousness. Galatians 3.23 Galatians 3.23 says, Paul is talking, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. He said, here's the righteous standard. Here's the righteous standard. I don't have it. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. We're not justified by the law. But the law was our schoolmaster to train us, to teach us that we don't measure up. So now we have to realize we have this righteousness that is not of the law. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, remember, Paul had done all these amazing good works, all this training. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he said, indeed, I count everything as lost. All that stuff I count as lost of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Why is having Christ better than having anything else? He goes on, so that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Our righteousness does not come through the law. We cannot meet the standard that Jesus is laying out. And that's the first thing we need to get from this. But then, is that all? Is there more in here we should understand? I think that's the heart of it. Our righteousness comes through Christ. Remember, He lived the perfect life. We could not. We get our righteousness from Him, not from us doing good deeds. Well, what is our relationship to the law? First of all, it's this. 
we as Christians are exempt from the condemnation of the law. There is now in Christ, therefore in Christ, now no condemnation. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. You don't get your righteousness there. You, you will not be condemned by the law. But notice what it says. It says, for those who believe. What does that say about those who do not believe and their relationship to the law? It still condemns them. There are those who want to say Christ abolished the law. Well, if Christ abolished the law, what is still condemning those who have not believed? The law is still active. That covenant of works, that when we come into this life, we either have to do what is required and get the blessings or do what is not required and face the consequences. Well, none of us can do what's required. We've all sinned and fallen short. Christ did what we could not, and we find our salvation in Him. So, but we need to remember, again, we're not under the ceremonial laws. That's gone. And we're, but we're not free to ignore the moral commands of the law. So even though we find our righteousness in Christ, and Christ is laying out a standard here we cannot meet, we are not free to sin so that grace may abound. We are called to live a certain life. And what is that standard? That is God's moral law. That is how we should live. Now, why would we want to do this? Because we have a new nature, a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're not perfect. We still have sin. The old man, we struggle against it. But we do have a new nature. And that new nature that is in us should desire to live the moral law as much as we can. That should be our goal. So if you don't get anything else out of this verse, out of this lesson, I want you to get this. Our righteousness comes from Christ. So that's the thing we need to remember first. But through sanctification, we should eventually, if not already, have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Just being poor in spirit, just being pure in heart, just being meek, just being peacemakers has already exceeded them. We should have a righteousness that exceeds them. But never confuse the fact that you have that righteousness as the reason why you are saved. When you stand before God and He says, why should I let you into heaven, which is not going to happen. He's already going to know you. He's just going to let you in. But if that were to happen, why should I let you in? If we were to give the answer, because you sanctified me and made me holy, look how holy I am, he would say, wrong. That's what the Pharisees said. He's praying, Lord, thank you for not making me like this. He even gives God credit for his holiness. So that man walked away and justified. The reason we will only the only reason we will ever be righteous is because of what Christ did. He lived a perfect life. He did not falter, and that is counted as mine. But that does not mean we should not strive for righteousness in this life. We should have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Any thoughts or questions on that section? Um, okay, so the moral law, is that really 
you know where you want to see. I just want to know exactly when you look at like the Ten Commandments specifically. Or oh yeah, the Ten Commandments are clearly the uh, the, the moral law, uh, and then most all the other law that you read through Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all, are really a breakdown further, and you even see some case law of how it played out in Israel. So you get more of an expanse of that. Now there is one interesting, uh, I'll, I'll just throw this out and let you guys think about it a little bit, but the one commandment of the Ten Commandments that has a little bit of a ceremonial aspect to it is the Sabbath. Is the Sabbath. That's what I was going to ask you. We've had that conversation in women's Bible study too. Like, mm-hmm. Should we like, you know, work on the Sabbath? Should we not? And there's been a lot of... There is a moral requirement, I believe, in uh, Scripture and it still applies to us today, that there should be time of rest for God and reflection on God, time devoted to God. What day it is, is the ceremonial aspect of it. Or if it's even a day. I mean, we even have passages where Paul says, you know, our rest is actually in Christ. So there's a, that ceremonial aspect has been fulfilled even in Christ. But I will, I will lay this out, just let you guys think about it throughout the rest of the week. Sunday is different than every other day of the week. And it... it because of God. God has laid it out this way. If I were to say, you have bread and you have wine here, and this is for eating at your house. You have bread and you have wine here. This is for the Lord's Supper. Do you think there should be a difference in the way we treat that bread and that wine? I mean, when you're taking it? Of course. Do you know there's only one other thing that is called the Lord's in that same ceremonial way? And that is Sunday the Lord's day. Now, I'm not a Sabbatarian. I don't believe we can't work ever or we can't do, you know, even go out and go for a walk or do things like that. But there should be a difference about the day. I'll let you guys think through that the rest of the week. But there is definitely a ceremonial aspect to that. But yes, the moral law ultimately is, uh, is found there and all throughout. There are some interesting laws that are, are they more civil or are they more ceremonial? Don't sew two fabrics together. Is that really a moral command? It doesn't seem to be a moral command. It seems to be a civil thing. For, and it could even be ceremonial for setting the people of Israel apart from the rest of the world. But uh, there, So there's a lot of things you have to work through. But uh, we do have to understand the moral law in the midst of all that. Any other questions or comments on that? All right, let's uh, go into Christ now talking on anger. Now what we're going into here for the rest of the next few weeks actually... Jesus is now going to give six illustrations of your righteousness should exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's going to do six, six pictures of where the Pharisees get it wrong, and he's going to clarify the understanding of the law. So that is the first thing we need to remember. All of these things that are going to come, he's going to do it with anger, he's going to do it with lust, he's going to do it with divorce, verse 31, he's going to do it with oaths in verse 33, he's going to do it with retaliation in verse 38, and he's going to do it with loving your enemies. And he's going to use the same formula. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he's clarifying. All of this is to... Understand this principle that our righteousness should exceed the scribes and Pharisees. That's really what all this is about. Someone read uh, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, 
Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are off on, I'm sorry, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Okay. So here's the first example where the Pharisees get it wrong. So he's going from this general principle to now some specifics. This is the correct understanding of the law. If you're going to be poor in spirit, if you're going to be salt and light, you need to understand it in the way Jesus understands it, not in the way the Pharisees understood it. So he starts off, he says, you have heard it said. What is this referring to? Well, he's not talking about the law. Moses said this. But I say that's wrong. That's not what's happening. Remember, he's already said, I agree with the law. Everything about the law is going to be fulfilled. So when he says, you have heard it said, what he's talking about is pharisaical tradition. Pharisaical tradition teaches you. It's much like at the time of the Reformation. Uh, There's a very interesting parallel there. There really weren't Bibles and scrolls around. So the people only got their information about what the Bible supposedly taught by the leaders of the day. But the leaders were corrupt and were teaching lies. And so they thought it was the law, but it wasn't. So you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Interesting fact about the term judgment here. It refers only to judicial or civil judgment. Nothing else. Nothing else implied in that when the Pharisees said that. Now, Jesus doesn't disagree with that basic principle. Of course, if you murder, you're liable to civil judgment. Jesus doesn't say that's wrong. What he does disagree with, he says, if that's all you think that command means, that's where you're wrong. There's much more. Now, he goes on. He's going to clarify. Verses, verse 22. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa, there's an expansion. There's something that really says, well, I might be able to meet the fact that I've never killed anyone, but have I met this? Notice he starts off by saying this. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Notice he didn't say, but the law says to you. Jesus is here speaking as one who has authority. This is one of the things they mentioned at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They were amazed that he spoke this way. Why can Jesus speak with such authority? Because he was the one who wrote the law. He was the one who gave the law. He is God. So he says, I say to you, speaking with authority. And he's going to talk about anger. Now, just to clarify a few things here. Anger does not simply mean... I'm a little frustrated, you know. It means I want harm to come to somebody. That's what I want. I'm angry with them. And isn't it interesting that when we get angry, usually the first thing we do is we start insulting. Insults are harmful. 
They are intended for harm. That is a violation of the command, thou shalt not kill. That is what Jesus is saying here. That's very heavy. Convicts us all, condemns us all, if we really think about it. Killing ultimately means wanting injury to come someone. It can be physically. A fight is a violation. I mean, unless you're protecting yourself, clearly. But if you're just going out to get someone, a fight is a violation of the command that I shall not kill. Spiritual harm. Yes? Well, I'm using King James language, but yes, there's a difference between murder and kill. Uh, there is just killing. We have to uh, make that clear. God has said in the law that there is just killing. <laughs> you know, if someone puts a man to death because he's killed the image of God, he should be put to death. That was part of the Old Testament law. So, when I say kill, I mean murder. Unjust killing. Clearly. Good point. <laughs> so, um, but we physically, we can want someone harmed spiritually. You realize that telling someone to go to hell is about the worst thing you could ever say to anybody? That's wanting spiritual harm to come to someone. Emotionally, to hinder someone's rep, to want to hurt somebody's reputation, gossip, slander, all of these things fall under the category of thou shalt not murder. Jesus is saying, don't do these things. And remember, the, the Pharisees' understanding was judgment was just civil. Jesus says, yeah, if you insult your brother, you could be liable to the council. But if you say you fool, you can even be in danger of hellfire. So not only is it much more expansive on what this covers, the punishment is much worse than what they think it is. So those are the negative things. Even hatred of heart is enough to condemn us to hell. All of us have fallen short in this from time to time. Now, does this mean we can never be angry? No. The Bible even says, be angry and do not sin. But our anger cannot be in the form that it wants harm to come to somebody. It has to be against the sin, not the man. So, that's kind of the, the picture here. These are all the negative things. Here's the things you can't do. This is what do not murder means. Don't do all of this. Don't just not kill somebody. But he's going to go on and he says, oh, it's more than that. It doesn't stop there. There's a positive requirement that comes with all this. And in verse 23 he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So really what he's starting to show here is that the term do not kill does not only mean don't do this. It means do this. It means Love others. It means want what is best for them. And so if you're going to the altar, this would have been an Old Testament setting, you're bringing your goat, you're bringing your grain, your wine offering, whatever it is, and you realize that someone has something against you that you are actually guilty of. You know it. They know it. Do not let that go. Go make that right. Apologize. Do recompense if you have to of some sort. Make it right before you even take it to the altar. Why is this? Because to obey is better than sacrifice. 
and to hearken than the fat of rams. The Pharisees loved the ceremonies because they looked good, but their hearts were corrupt. And Jesus is saying, it's better that you go take this care, do all this before you come do these ceremonies because that's more significant. So not only should we not hold things against our brothers and sisters in Christ and those outside of Christ, we should be peacemakers if we have wronged them. Go take care of it. Now, I'm talking, these things, again, would be legitimate things. There are people who go falsely accuse you, and maybe you need to deal with some false accusations, but you need to deal with it in a different way. But if you know I've actually done wrong, they're aware of it, and they're holding this grudge because I've never come to them and apologized, Jesus is saying, go take care of it. So he goes on in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court with him. So clearly Jesus even has things in mind here that are very significant. It could be taken to court. You could be have some serious wrongs uh, or serious judgment come upon you. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Sins have practical consequences. That's really what Jesus is talking about here. Try to avoid the practical consequences of your sin. Go make things right as much as is possible. And notice it says there's a sense of urgency here. Come to terms quickly. Don't let it linger for years and years and years. Come to terms quickly. If you have a debt to someone that you've not paid, pay it. Or work out some agreement to pay it. We cannot be salt and light to the world if we are wronging others. Nothing will hurt our testimony more than that. So depending on the nature of our sin, we could face serious earthly consequences. What we need to do is we need to face it, we need to deal with it, and then pray that the Lord mitigates the consequences. And he does that quite often. Joseph sinned against Esau. He was afraid to go back. He prayed to the Lord. He was feared. He wrestled with God. God let that situation go. Esau embraced him. God can work wonders. So we need to go with him. So again, to reiterate, to murder is not more than not physically hurting someone. It's not not only not just insulting or being angry or hating someone. It's also positively we should be loving others. We should be wanting what's best for them. And if we've wronged them, we cannot be people who are unwilling to amend our wrongs. The, the Beatitudes in our height, heart fight all of this. We submit. We're merciful. We're peacemakers. It causes us to feel that we need to do this and we need to, to act on them. So as we think through all of this, do we love righteousness in the way that Christ is laying it out here? Or are we just happy that people on the outside think we're people of integrity? When the inside is just corrupt, it doesn't care, it's cold, it's callous. Jesus said, that's a serious problem. My people love righteousness. We fight against it. Living the Christian life is hard because it involves self-denial. And these passions are there all throughout the week. I know I have accountability partners because I know if I don't have accountability partners, my passions can sometimes get the best of me. That's not 
pleasant all the time to sit there and talk about your shortcomings with someone who cares with you about you. But sometimes it's needed. Are we willing to take those steps because we love righteousness? We all fall short. This is one other thing, picture I want you to get. We all fall short, and this should point out our need for Christ. So here's the application. First of all, if you look at this and go, wow, I'm not there, which that's what should happen as we understand this. Run to Christ, because in ourselves we do not have the righteousness that is required. Run to Him, find your sufficiency in Him. That's why you are right with God, not because you fall short or whether you get it right or not. Find your sufficiency in Christ. Second thing we need to do is we need to love the law. We need to try to understand it so we can live it. Thirdly, we don't need to don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be self-satisfied. Focus on yourself more than others. Don't be happy with ceremony while ignoring the heart. Don't make your own laws or your own rules while ignoring God's laws. Because Jesus said, unless we have a righteousness that exceeds that, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. Says, so, and the final thing here is, if you do have something you need to get right with someone, go make it right. It'll be hard. Do it in his strength. Get prayed up, go deal with it. That's what the Lord is saying here. When we live this way, when we live with love for our neighbors, and we live with love for others, we are salt and light. It's just what happens. Apologies are not but something the world does not understand, especially if they're heartfelt. They're tough. They are tough. That's why the Christian life's not easy. I can think back of times I've had to go make things right. Hardest, some of the hardest moments in my life, you know. <coughs> So, you know, just take this to heart. I know it's kind of heavy note to leave on. But we are in Christ. We are new creations. And don't, don't take this the wrong way either. You know, sometimes we have thoughts about people. And we think, they don't know about it. I'm not saying, you need to go tell them you had bad thoughts about them. No, that only does more damage. <laughs> you just ask the Lord for forgiveness of that. I'm talking if someone, you've done something wrong with it to them and they know it. And you've never said, you know, I'm sorry for that. That's what I'm talking about. Any questions or comments on any of this? It's good stuff. Amen. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you and we praise you for, uh, for your word here. It challenges us. It breaks us a little bit. We know how much we fall short. And sometimes there's even things we need to do that aren't easy because of uh, following you. But, Lord, we just pray that you give us the strength to deny ourselves. Take up that cross and follow you um, wherever you lead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.